This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Well, hi, it's another episode of the Creative Agency Podcast. My name is Chris Bolton. I currently work as a strategy director at an agency called Murmur Creative uh, here in Portland, Oregon. Today, I interview Julian Layton of an agency called Orange Bus. Layton grew his agency to over 100 employees in just 10 years, but it wasn't easy and it involved a lot of sacrifice and risk. I love hearing stories like this because it's easy to relate to the pain and the doubt and the excitement of growing a successful creative agency. Julian has some great stories. Don't miss his one about how he landed the surf company O'Neill as a client. Later in the show, we'll talk about why he got a business loan in order to offboard the majority of his clients in order to focus on just a few. Our sponsor today is Gather Content. Gather Content is a collaboration tool that makes the copywriting and editing portion of any website project more organized, efficient, easier to manage, and altogether less confusing. One of the features of Gather Content that I love is that it lets you set page statuses like first draft or needs review by client or need editing by agency. And this makes it really easy for everyone to understand where you are in the process. Uh, Gather Content also allows you to export content directly to a CMS like WordPress, Drupal, Sitecore, and many others. You can get a free 30-day trial if you go to gathercontent.com forward slash CAP. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, If you like the show, I'd love to hear about it in a positive review on iTunes or a comment on the website, creativeagencypodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at creativeagncy. All right, let's get to the interview. All right, I have Julian Layton of Orange Bus on the show. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you calling in from? Uh, I am in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. Nice. You run an agency called Orange Bus. Um, there must be a story behind the name. There is, yeah, and it's usually the first question we're asked. Um, <laughs> around about uh, 16 years ago, I quit my job. at. Uh, I was working as um, an IBM solution seller, so I was kind of technical sales for IBM in the mid-range server division. Um, mm-hmm. through the business partner network and I decided I'd had enough of that and uh, when I quit uh, the company car goes back with the job so I bought myself an old VW camper van, uh, um, uh, an orange bay window camper van and I used to use that when I was doing little bits of consultancy to pay the bills while I was moving from one client to another I would maybe stop at a, a car park opposite the beach for a while and do a little bit of work and put the kettle on and, um, and have a cup of tea while I was while I was waiting for my next appointment to start and I just gradually became known as Julian with the Orange Bus. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I, I saw in your um, one of your talks that you uh, uh, used to promote raves. Yeah, I did. Well, so while I was at university, I mean, going back to the early 90s now, um, I'm 44 now, so this was when I was in my early 20s, and um, I got involved with a, a collective uh, in a place called Bradford in West Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the rave scene at the time was, was uh, getting... It was still reasonably underground, but it was kind of coming out of the, there was a big illegal rave scene towards the end of the 80s, and that was sort of over. The the, uh, the police and the, the government here managed to put a stop to that, and it was uh, becoming a little bit more uh, kind of official with licenses and actual proper premises, and, and I got involved with the collective. They'd been doing the illegal, and they weren't transferring brilliantly into the legal, so <laughs> I kind of helped them with the, the boring things like, um, like break-even points and uh, <laughs> making sure there was enough people coming through the door to pay the DJs and that sort of thing. And it, yeah, it was great fun. Happy times. That's cool. So when was Orange Bus founded officially? Yeah, so as it, as it is today, um, it was around about October 2006. And I met my co-founder, a guy called Mike Parker, uh, at an event up here in Newcastle. And um, at the time, I was working, doing little bits of consultancy, like I say. And uh, I met Mike, and he was working for an employer and was thinking about um, leaving to do his own thing uh, and as it happens at the time I had been asked by one of my clients if I could do some reasonably sophisticated uh, work that I didn't have any contractors that I knew that could do it and Mike's a 
computer scientist, I suppose, by trade or an engineer. And he could do the work and we just got on very well. We had about three months on this project together and decided pretty soon afterwards to join forces. So uh, 2006. 2006. And how many employees does Orange Bus have now? As of today, because I've just checked, 123. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it changes almost daily. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly goes up, but uh, um, you know we're spread across four offices now, and uh, so it, it does vary. You know, there is uh, once you get over a certain number of employees, it, it does sort of change quite. Quite quite quickly. That's a lot of hiring. How? When did most of that? When did all that hiring start? Did it start early on, or? Yeah, we always wanted to. So very early on, when Mike and I got together. So you know, when I was working doing the consultancy stuff, it was kind of like a lifestyle thing. Mm-hmm. So I used to surf a bit. I would generally enjoy life, and uh, and I was pretty relaxed after what had been a fairly stressful. If if uh, you know, still enjoyable, but IBM's a fairly stressful place to work, and mm-hmm. um, I'd had a few years of just enjoying life like i say and then the only motivation to start an agency was if we were going to do it at scale so the idea was from day one that we wanted to build something that we could grow pretty quickly and we started hiring the minute we had any money to be honest wow but yeah but it comes in bursts you know it doesn't it's not hasn't all been gradual like 12 a year or whatever for the last 10 years it's been uh, in bursts and stages and we've probably added 30 or 40 in the last 12 months Wow. Now, does the hiring a lot, does it coincide a lot of times with landing clients? It can, depending on what they are. So we got a, um, a government contract about three years ago uh, where we have to put agile teams into um, a government uh, agency or department um, to work on some of uh, the, the government's digital initiatives here in the UK, which are, are actually they're pretty cool, actually. It's, it's not always the sexiest client in the world, the government, mm-hmm. or at least so people think. But but the stuff they're working on is usually uh, the technology stacks are usually pretty cutting edge, and um, and the projects are usually pretty big, right? So uh, so the the guys like working on them. But when we first picked up that deal, I think we needed three agile teams of sort of six eight people very very quickly. So yeah, gotcha. we, we that that sometimes does happen, but we also have a a culture here and always have done of hiring talent if it happens to 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 cross our paths. To be honest, and one of our first hires was a was a designer called Turin who now actually lives out in uh, in the US. I can't remember where now. But I think she's in the <laughs> valley somewhere. And uh, she was our first designer. She actually designed our logo. She we weren't looking to hire a designer at the time, but she she genuinely knocked on our door, and there was only three of us, and and said that. She was a designer still at college, and were we interested in taking a look at, at the work that she did? And we thought she was unbelievably good and uh, and, and hired her straight away, even though, to be honest, we, we didn't really have enough work for her, and we certainly couldn't afford to pay our wages. So we, we just managed – we always just thought if, if we need this person in six months' time, somebody else will have snapped her up. So we had to find a way to make sure that that, that we took the talent on when, when we had the chance because they're never there when you need them. You know, it's yeah. always uh, hard to hire when you're kind of desperate. So – uh, we've still got that culture now. Some of genuine quality or class comes across our paths and we think that at some point we could do something with them, then uh, we, we'll always try and find space. Nice. Did you find yourself while you're growing? I mean, I know our agency, we usually don't have a lot of leftover uh, money after payroll goes out every month. We Did you find yourself growing like that or did you find it was it a safer experience where you always had somewhat of a cushion when you're you know making these decisions about hiring and stuff no we were always always running out of money i mean (laughs) certainly in the early days the first probably four or five years uh, we we just gambled every time we we had a a sort of slight window in the cash flow we that meant (laughs) that we could we could hire somebody we hired we we never left ourselves any room for things to go wrong which yeah, with with hindsight, uh, isn't the smartest move because things go wrong all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially when it comes to cash flow. So, so we, uh, yeah, we took a lot of risks, and um, and some of them probably unnecessary, but some of them I think if, you know because we had this growth plan from day one, we really thought that it was that it was important that we gambled wherever we could, and uh, it just meant that we didn't take any wages quite a lot of the time. Which right. Is, <laughs> I, I survived on credit cards for a while. So this is um, 10 years ago. You, I used to get a 
credit card application would drop through my door on an almost monthly basis and I just used to sign up to them all and I was <laughs> I was just paying one off of the other I mean it's a dreadful way to finance a business absolutely terrible but and, and really bad advice by the way so I'm not, I'm not <laughs> suggesting anybody else does it but that's that's genuinely what we did we survived where we could my wife had a good job and uh, and she so she managed to pay our bills and, and keep the food on the table and it was um yeah you've got to have a lot of faith in your future success to be able to take those risks i feel like that story has come across with a number if not all of the agencies i've interviewed that there is you know in order to grow you really do have to take some of those risks and um it you know at least makes me feel a little bit more comfortable in some of the risks we take here yeah. it's true and i think it's really interesting that i remember um uh, a kind of big tipping point for me was I was in London with a client who was uh, he ran a really big business. I mean, you know, very successful. He was quite a wealthy guy. He had all the trappings of success. And we were having a coffee and uh, at, you know over lunch, and he was telling me a story about how he used to walk down the street that we were on um, and worry about not getting paid off a particular client or other because if he didn't, he couldn't hit payroll that month. And it really made me realise that. He, you know, we're not the first people to experience this. Right. Uh, and it was quite nice knowing that, that even he, you know, this guy that I was looking at as, as, as somebody who was pretty successful, he'd been through exactly the same. Now, the massive irony was he, at that time, owed us quite a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did point that out to him. <laughs> um, and, and, and we got paid. And funnily enough, I think often when, when we asked people outright if they would just pay us on time quicker, uh, usually they did. If we explained the challenges that we had, usually people were pretty cool about it. But uh, if we didn't ask, we didn't get, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know sometimes I think that, you know, we, we put a lot of time in make, making our, we have a small office, but we make it look nice. And we have, you know, a conference room with a, with glass doors and stuff. And I think sometimes people think that we're, you know, rolling in cash and uh, they, they don't feel completely uh, all that motivated to pay on time. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I, it was it was a, a bit of advice I had from somebody else who said to me, why don't you just change the terms on your invoices and just change them to 14 days? Why not? Uh, people can only say, no, our standard terms are 28. But because that's just kind of standard here in the UK, I'm not too sure about the US, but certainly mm-hmm. here, you know, most people assume 28 days in agency world is, is pretty reasonable. Well, if you ask for 28, you tend to get 35 or 42. If you ask for 14 and, and a purchasing department comes back and says, no, no, you, we can't uh, we can't do 14 days, um, our standard terms are 28, then you say, okay, that's fine, but you insist on being paid on those 28 days. Yeah, that's and not a bad idea. Yeah. So are most of your employees, where are they located? Are they all in one place or? Yeah, we've got, it's predominantly here in, uh, in Newcastle. So we have, um, about 10,000 square feet of space here, over two floors of a an old um, listed building in the in the heart of the city centre. It's a, it's a beautiful space. Uh, but we also have satellite offices up in Edinburgh, in Scotland, and one in Sheffield, and uh, the obligatory London uh, office as well. Wow. So I'm just trying to imagine all these employees you had to hire, plus opening all these offices <laughs> over such a short period of time. Very impressive. Thanks very much. Um, what would you say that is Orange Bus's sort of niche or specialty? Yeah, it's a it's a good question because it's it's actually something we're looking at now. We we try and look forward, um, uh, kind of three years if we can, and and work out what we want to be famous for then. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not thinking about that now, then chances are you know we're going to miss something. But if I look backwards, uh, when we started, we were a sort of pure design and build agency so we did everything from soup to nuts if you like we would yeah. do, do you know including hosting and support and everything else i think what we found as we've got bigger is that um often clients want to pick off the specialisms that we've got uh to complement their own in-house development teams mm-hmm. so whilst we've still got you know the, the 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 majority of what we do is is engineering or development or software whatever you want to call it we are moving the percentage isn't as great as it used to be and we now have more uh, kind of design thinking skills or user experience skills or you know that the, the sort of research um piece that we do now for some of the larger clients is often very significant mm-hmm. whereas when we were a smaller agency you, you know if you, if you had a client with a, a budget of let's say twenty thousand pounds or dollars they're not going to want to spend a huge amount of time on research they're just going to assume that you know you know what 
what what the right thing is to do. Right. If you're dealing with a project that's worth hundreds of thousands or even more millions, then the chances are there's bigger um, there's bigger risks at stake, and therefore tiny margins can make all the difference. And that's where people see the value in these uh, more specialist services. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely changing, and we are now becoming becoming known for the design thinking piece and for the uh, the UX, the UI, the research. But but in reality, if you looked at our accounts, uh, uh, we're still overwhelmingly a, a software and engineering company. So do you do, um, you know, like ongoing marketing services or anything like that? No, for clients. Yeah. No, we don't. Uh, I, I mean, actually, that's one area we've never um, got into. And we did dabble with it years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at things like SEO and pay-per-click and, uh, and affiliate marketing and a, I didn't understand it, which is never, never a great place to be if you're trying to set up a new division. It just looked like a black art to me all the time, and uh, I, I never really understood any of what was happening. So um, maybe that was part of the problem. But I thought it fit. I thought it was a good fit for us for a while. I just thought it was a natural thing that we would add on. And in reality, when when we did it, we found that most of our clients weren't really interested in us to providing that service for them. It's just not mm-hmm. what they saw us as. And, and we had this real challenge in overcoming that objection all of the time. And in reality, we weren't probably that good at, at doing that. So we, we stopped and we did about nine months of uh, of our digital marketing division, and very quickly decided it was it was a bad idea and uh, and stopped. Yeah, we we on a much much smaller level um, have dabbled with ongoing marketing as well, and have had sort of a similar experience. Is that our perception as a company is more of a design and and um, web company. And it's a very dis- different discipline. I mean, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't naturally. So it they're all new people that that we needed to hire. There weren't. It wasn't that we could people that we already had could move from one set of skills to another. It was a totally new world for us. So if the clients weren't that interested and and we didn't already have the skills, well, you're starting a new business completely. And yeah. why choose that one then? You know, so it, 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 there was already plenty of established players and it just didn't seem to make sense for us. Yeah, exactly. Why not open a restaurant or something else yeah, exactly. <laughs> outside of your expertise? Could. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what what would you say was has really contributed to your growth? Um, if there were one or two factors, I do get asked this question quite a lot, and I probably give a different answer every time, which is probably <laughs> indicative of the of the the challenge in answering it. I think, um, you know, over a ten year period, uh, it's very difficult to to pinpoint uh, one or two things. What I would say is we've been pretty relentless in ensuring the quality of what we do. I, I mean, I can genuinely count on on one hand if not a few fingers the amount of negative experiences we've had with clients and that's always mm-hmm. going to happen you know when you've done as many projects and work with as many people uh, as we have now it's inevitably going to have some that are just a bad fit for whatever reason but but there's not many and uh and i think that has probably been a big contributing factor because your clients are your best source of revenue and your best source of new work usually. So, you know, yeah. the, the better your clients, the happier your clients are, the more work they'll give you. But also they do tend to recommend you to other people. And if you do great work for clients, then it, that work is seen by other people and, you know, that, that cycle goes on. So I would like to think that our, um, our drive towards a high-quality product and service has been pretty instrumental in, in allowing us to keep growing as quick as we, as quick as we have. Nice. Um, and because your reputation grows with it, and, and that's probably the overwhelming thing. You have some interesting stories about landing some bigger clients. Um, one of those is about O'Neill, which is actually uh, O'Neill, um, the person, was in Santa Cruz where I grew up. So, oh, okay. Um, well, I'm very familiar with Jack O'Neill's story, yeah. So... So yeah, the the O'Neill thing, I guess. I mean, I, I, we, we've got quite a few stories here around clients where um, people say, "Wow, how did you land that? You know, how did that happen?" And and you could, if you were on the one hand, you could look at the stories and say, "Well, yeah, actually, we we were a bit lucky." But I do try and look at the circumstances around the event and see what we did to to capitalize on them. I'm not a great believer in luck in isolation. I think. People stumble across opportunities on a daily basis. And on the whole, there, there is a Winston Churchill quote, but I'm not going to try and do it because I'll, I'll get it hopelessly wrong. But to paraphrase, <laughs> people stumble across opportunity on a daily basis and and most of them get up, dust themselves down and keep walking. And, it, and it's what you do when you see those opportunities. So the O'Neill one, my um, I'd, I'd sold the orange uh, orange bus, if you like, by, the, by this point. It was about... 
uh, to, it was only a year into starting the agency actually, so maybe 2007, and my bus, I had a red and white one by this point, which uh, was an older model, a split screen, and I had it parked uh, opposite the beach uh, in Tynemouth, just on the coast here, mm-hmm. and somebody from O'Neill's marketing team was on the beach, and they, they kind of hung around my van until I came back to it and, and asked if they could use it for a, a marketing shoot. And uh, and I said, yeah, that would be that's fine. It's I mean, we negotiate the price pretty much on the spot, and we agreed it. But I said I have to come with the van. This, you, you know, I don't just deliver the van and then go away and come back later. I have to stay with the van. I don't let anybody else moving it or driving it or anything else. And that mm-hmm. wasn't strictly true. What I wanted <laughs> to do was was to get close to the marketing people at O'Neill. Um, and I spent the day kind of gluing myself to to the key people there and probably being a bit of an irritant. Uh, and, and whether or not it was just to get rid of me, or, or they were impressed enough, but they gave us a chunk of work. We we did some work for their for their uh, direct marketing team, so we started doing um, online uh, the email marketing for them. So just creating mm-hmm. creating flyers with hyperlinks back to a to the website that they had with special offers on and things. And we did that for about a year, and the relationship grew a little bit from there. We we co-sponsored a, the British National Safe Championships with them one year, which was great. But on the whole, what that did is it gave us a massive brand. You know, it gave us that that tick in the box when people said to us in those early days, well, who do you work for? If you can say O'Neill, a global brand, it kind of gets you over that hurdle pretty quickly. And uh, so that sort of bit of luck, if you like, um, was something that we pursued pretty relentlessly. So I, I think that was one. Um, the other one's even more contrived, so you'll have to bear with me. The... Uh, <laughs> So I broke down in that particular van um, pretty much 10 years ago. I hadn't had it long, and it broke down all the time when I first got it. And a young guy called Harry Volcard stopped to help me um, on the side of the road here. I was parked pretty precariously. I had no hazard lights, and uh, I was trying to work out just what the hell I was going to do while all of these cars were flying past. And this guy stopped to help me because it turns out he had one, and he'd, he he understood the experience of breaking down all the time. Uh-huh. And uh so he stopped to offer me a tour or whatever. He was in a different car at the time. And um, I struck up a conversation with him later on once we got safely off the road. And it turns out he was also a kind of part-time racing driver, racing in a, a race series up uh, around the UK um, for a single mark, like a single brand racing series. So you know, pretty, not, not particularly uh, high-end racing, if you like, but it was interesting enough for us and always like cars. So we offered to build him a website in exchange for putting a sticker with our logo on on the side of his car, and he was happy with that. <laughs> anyway, that relationship grew, and we sponsored Harry, and then we sponsored the team that he drove for, and actually he got better and started driving the British Touring Car Championship, then the World Touring Car Championship. And then as we sponsored the team, the team got bigger and better, and that moved on to us, uh, ended up working for Aston Martin Racing with their team, which is obviously a very prestigious brand. And then... The kind of culmination of the story is we are, as of this year, Force India Formula One team's um, official digital partner, and we signed a three-year deal with them. And I can trace that deal all the way back to the fact that I broke down in my my camper van back in 2006. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's two things you can take from the story. One is I think everybody can justify having a a really old and therefore inherently unreliable uh, vehicle in the car fleet (laughs) at work. Uh, and a slightly more serious one is to, you know, if you do meet somebody, no matter what the circumstances are, you never know where it might lead. Yeah? And, uh, you know, we had no idea when we did that. And, and actually, people would say to us at the time, what are you doing spending this money, you know, spending your time, um, you know, building websites for racing drivers? You're never going to get any work from that. But, you know, you just never know, do you? You never know. Well, I think I need to buy a van. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> So is it true that your office was once located in a windmill? Yeah, you're probably starting to get a feel for the way that we've done things now, which is <laughs> kind of, uh, style over practicality was always sort of fairly important for us. And uh, um, we always felt that the image of the business, if, we, if you're going to be involved in any sort of creative agency, um, we always thought the image was really <laughs> important. So our, our very first office, when it was just Mike and I, was a cupboard i mean it was genuinely was it was no bigger than a cupboard we had we had two corner desks because that was the only way we could both get in the room and i could kind of lean behind me and touch mike on the shoulder quite easily (laughs) and uh but it was in a really good place it it had a good address and we had an agreement with the guy who owned the building Mm -hmm. that if we ever had a meeting we could he would 
move out of his room and we could take the pictures of his kids down and put ours up and pretend that we had a bigger office upstairs. So, so smoke and mirrors, I always thought was pretty important because being honest, most clients didn't come to us. We went to them for a meeting. Um, and we carried that on and the windmill was uh, a fantastic building. It was a, an 18th century um, structure, kind of brick, uh, first, first <laughs> uh, story, and then this wooden structure on top. And it was fantastic. It looked absolutely brilliant. Very iconic building in Newcastle. Everybody knows it. Impossible to keep either warm in the winter or cold in the summer, mind. I mean, we, I mean, we had about one month of reasonable temperature every year. Uh, and we were always struggling with that. But clients absolutely loved it. And a bit like the bus, we we used it in every single bit of marketing that we did, every single PR shot. I mean, in our world, especially digital, most PR shots, certainly at the time, were dreadful pictures of men with laptops or, you know, with with a screen superimposed on just really dull stuff and yet we were we were able to put pictures of, of the camera van the surfboards that you know there was always something the windmill that we could do that was a little bit a little bit different and and picture editors in, in the press usually wanted to run with our pictures because they were a bit more exciting than the other stuff that were being offered and it did work for us for sure that's cool our office is located in a high school building um, that's been converted into offices right. so we've used some of that we actually all of our um, staff pictures uh, we used high school archetypes like cheerleaders and um, and teachers and principals as like we got all dressed up and did a photo shoot <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, but I, you know, it, it shows the personality of your agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that you all did that and thought that was a good idea and fun. Uh, it kind of gives you a little bit of personality, I think, and I, I really believe that that's important. In your estimation, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you've made while growing your agency? Um, I, this is another tricky one that you know. I guess most people get asked quite often, and and when I look back um, on on things that I wish I'd done differently. Um, I think on the whole, it's bad hires that usually come to the, the forefront of my mind, mm-hmm. you know, where we've, we've really got a hire, we got one wrong and, um, we've been pretty good at hiring over the years. I think we've found some great talent and, and we've managed to keep it on the whole. We haven't, we haven't lost too many. Uh, we can't different when, uh, when touring the designer wants to move to the U S like it was difficult to compete with, but if, you know, if, if people are happy to stay in this region, they tend to stay with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm quite proud of that. But we have had some bad ones. And, and I think they tend to be really quite destructive sometimes. You can get people who are a bit of a drain on, on, on the vibe and on everybody's energy levels sometimes. And that's bad enough. If you get a really um, you know, an out-and-out charlatan in the team, then it, it can cause incredible problems. And we've had a few of those over the years. Again, I can count on several fingers how many. It's not something that's plagued us uh, particularly uh, heavily, but those are the things that usually uh, kind of weigh heavily on my mind. That I wish I'd got that one. I wish I'd done a bit more due diligence on that. I'd done my back to background checks. So I even actually, I wish I'd listened to that little voice at the back of my head that said, "This guy isn't right," you know. Because often you you, you do get that feeling, but you go with the crowd, or you or you go with the incredible CV or resume and and the great references, and it's uh, there's usually something there at the back of your mind that you, you go back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually just let go our first employee, the first, not the first employee, but our, for the first time we let go an employee and it was really, really difficult experience, but there was sort of a lot of toxicity being created, um, by this individual. And I, do you have any advice like, or solace for other agency owners that have to go through this process? Because it was really difficult and we probably, you know, I don't know how well we necessarily handled it. Because you know we started out as creatives, not business majors, so some of this yeah. some of this stuff is is new for us. So I think um, I think it really depends on the reasons for the for the firing or for the letting go. I, th- I think it, it tends to f- to fall into a couple of different areas for me. If you've got somebody who's toxic and, and somebody who's causing problems for the business because of their attitude, their integrity, or, or something like that, the only advice I've got is just do it quickly. Mm-hmm. I've never, ever once fired anybody for those reasons and then thought afterwards, yeah, I really wish I'd taken a little bit longer to fire that guy. (laughs) It just doesn't happen. So once you start and think that there's a problem and you need to do it, do it as quickly as humanly possible. And uh, I think think that comes with experience. Sounds like a terrible thing to say, but once you've had to do it a few times, you, you realize very, very quickly that once you've identified that problem, the chances are you can't fix it. 
and, and you just need to get rid of it. The the other side of it is if it's more of a, you know, if, you, if you're doing something where you're changing the skills or, you know, the business has grown to a point where that person's just no longer fit, fit for the role or there isn't a role for them anymore, then I think that's often tinged with a bit of sadness. That's much more difficult, mm-hmm. uh, assuming you're a reasonably nice guy, which I'm sure you are. <laughs> And not, none of us, you know, none of us like making that decision and, and having that meeting. But I think as long as you you treat people with respect and honesty and uh, and really you're not responsible for their destiny, it's not you know it's not your role in life to um, to to be responsible for these people. They've got to make their own journey, and you've been a part of it. But if you're not part of the future, you just just got to be straight with people and uh, and get on with it really. And We've had to do that plenty of times over the years. I don't think we've fallen out with anybody. Maybe, maybe former employees might feel differently, <laughs> but I think on the whole, we've, we, you know, we've always tried to do it um, uh, the right way, and and we still have former employees who are who are friends of the business for sure. Excellent. Um, so you recently sold Orange Bus. Um, how, did you always plan on selling the business? We did. Yeah, if I'm honest, that was. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, I think we always want to build something that would scale quickly. And uh, the reason for that was that we wanted to get to a point where we could exit and make some money. I think if the money had come earlier, so so it, it did take, it took us realistically. I mean, I don't know. So everybody says it takes five years to, start to, to really nail your business. And we thought that was hilarious. We were convinced we'd, we'd do it in two. Anyway, it took five. <laughs> it probably took six. Yeah. Uh, so I think if the money had come earlier, uh, you know, if we had somehow managed to do it in two or three, and, and I certainly I do know people who, who have had success kind of almost from day one, then maybe we, we would have just carried on running it and enjoying it. But because we risked so much for so long, I think by the time we got to a point where the business was valuable enough and attractive enough to uh, for companies to want to buy us, we were ready mm-hmm. pretty much to, to stop risking everything every year. And what I did find is that the risks never really seemed to lessen for us. Even though we built a pretty good pool of cash, um, you don't really want to lose it once you've, you know, you've spent seven, eight, nine years trying to make it. It's... Uh, it actually, funnily enough, I used to feel more worried about the money that we'd made in the business and, you know, sitting in the business account. We we, we didn't really take a lot out personally. Um, I used to get more worried about losing that than when I wasn't getting paid and I was living on credit yeah. cards for some reason. <laughs> it just seemed to be much a much bigger risk when we well, once we got it as opposed to before we did. It was a strange quirk of psychology or personality or what, I don't know. So... We were certainly ready. It was always the plan, um, really, and we were definitely ready by the time it uh, it happened. I mean, it makes a lot of sense with you know something like a creative agency that that it's hard to create a, a security blanket for yourself personally when the you know income can be a little bit volatile and you know you have clients that can come and go at any moment. And you're also if you're trying to scale, as we always were, we were constantly sort of saying, okay, well we've made x this year what if we reinvest that and we gamble on this and this and this you know what do we think we can we can make a better return on that money rather than just taking it out and paying a huge pile of tax right and certainly in the uk the the, the tax laws here are uh, they actually encourage you to sell which i have a bit of a problem with to be honest but they are the, the tax breaks for selling a business in terms of the capital gain gains tax that you pay are are absolutely huge compared to the the tax that you pay on salaries and, and dividends if you actually take them out of the business. So you are, you know, that you, you do the maths and we would have had to have worked for a considerable amount of time at very high, uh, you know, taking a lot of money out of the business. So therefore at quite a large risk to get anything like what we, we managed to make on the sale. Interesting. So it, it kind of made that decision for you. Mm-hmm. So are, are you still at the helm? Are you, are you going to be running Orange Bus for a while? Yeah, I'm still so I'm still officially CEO and uh, and here every day or at least um in around every day I uh I have a different job now I suppose in that I'm now I'm reporting a lot of the time into the people at Bose so that's largely my you know a lot of my job is making sure those guys are happy um one thing that has changed about the world that I now live in is the amount of reporting that you do is just astonishing <laughs> when, you're, when you're owned by a big corporate. It's, I mean, it's a totally different world, you know, completely different. And uh, we seem to have an army of financial people now that are, are, are just there to provide reports upwards. They're not necessarily um, spending a huge amount of time on, on doing 
you know, more for the business as in uh, within our little business because there wasn't that much more that we needed to do. You know, it's uh, it's incredible how many more people we now have that are just just there for the reporting up. But I do understand why it's a, you know, we're owned now by um, a, a kind of five billion turnover business. It's got seventy six thousand employees. It, you know, it's it's a big entity and and everybody has to follow the same structures and standards. And that's been a real eye opener and a learning curve for us is 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 how to operate in that corporate world because none of us were particularly familiar with it if i'm honest mm-hmm. has that caused some stress in the company yes i, I can't pretend it hasn't mm-hmm. it's uh because it we'd i mean i i left my job um in 2000 i think it was 2002 um so 15 16 years ago something like that was when i left the job um at ibm and so I haven't I hadn't had a boss since then, so that caused me a lot of stress. <laughs> not being in control and not not being uh, the the kind of person who makes the final decision uh, was very stressful for me personally. However, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this in case he, he ever listens. Um, he's a great guy. I'm, I've enjoyed working for him, and um, and I'm learning new things, which was part of the motivation as well. It wasn't just a financial decision to sell. We wanted to play a different game. We wanted to be able to 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 operate in a world that really would have been very difficult if you're not part of a, a larger corporate uh, entity. So we've learned a huge amount, not just from the individuals that we work for, but but also just from the, the new environment that we're in and, and the sort of jobs and, and things that we're being asked to work on. Nice. There was a point in your um, agency where you, you took out a loan and you decided to offboard a lot of clients. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how how you came to that conclusion and um, and how that all worked out. So uh, this was a really, really big pivotal point for us. If anybody ever asks me what was our big tipping point, for me, this was it. We had grown to about, I don't know, 25, 30 people. We were in a proper office now. It wasn't a windmill. And we had actually had phones and and, uh, and leased furniture and you know, a whole pile of debt. And what we realized is that we were we were largely running a bigger lifestyle company. There was never any profit left over at the end of the month. And that's because we weren't particularly focused on profit. We were always focused on cash flow. It was all that we ever did was was worry about whether or not we were going to get enough money in to pay what was by then a not inconsiderable uh, salary bill every month. And we hadn't realized just how big a problem that had become. And we, we got to a point where we decided to have a, 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 a like kind of P&L review of every single account that we had and all of the clients we were working for. And we went through them and realized, and it wasn't just clients, sometimes it was individual. We, so we worked for a very big company up here called Sage. Sage is the world's, I think the world's biggest financial software company. Mm-hmm. And um, they're based in Newcastle, so just up the road from us. And uh, we used to do a lot of work for them, but across many different departments and they all had, they were all fairly autonomous. And we realized that it wasn't just some clients. Some clients had different divisions and one division would be very profitable for us and another one wouldn't be. But until you take a step back from the business and actually have a look at, at which ones are which and you really do a, a kind of review of that, it's, it's very hard to see. You just assume that you're doing all of this work and there's some money coming in and that much is going out every month and hope, hopefully there'll be a bit left over. So we, we, we went into much more detail, like I say, every single, not just client, but every job that we did and we worked out which ones were profitable and which ones worked and uh, weren't. And, and we, we got to a point where it was kind of this Pareto's law, this 80-20 rule. I think ours was around about 72-28. So 72% of our clients were quite terrifyingly either making us a loss or just breaking even. And, uh, and 28% were effectively uh, making us a profit. And since I've started speaking about this a little bit, you find that this is not an un- uncommon thing and within agencies because most of us start an agency because starting a service business is, is a relatively easy thing to do. And I say relative uh, in inverted commas because you don't need a huge amount of investment. You sell your time for money, then you might hire somebody and sell their time for money and it grows. You don't have to spend ages building a product and then marketing it and then hoping that the money comes in. But what often seems to happen, and again, we weren't the only people to experience this, what often seems to happen is that actually because you grow in that manner, you end up with a whole load of overhead and you've just got to keep servicing that overhead. And what became critical to us at around about this time was just winning work so we could get an upfront kind of 25% payment to start because we needed the cash flow. And we started to look at potential jobs um, based on how quickly we could get 
some money in from them as opposed to necessarily how profitable it would be. And and it made us very easy to negotiate against. And I do mean against, you know, it's, it, if somebody feels that they've got the upper hand like that, then then negotiation over price can be can be pretty straightforward and uh, and I think I can look back on quite a few deals that we did back then where if we'd probably held our line a little bit we might have got a lot more money and uh, but we just didn't dare because we needed the gig and it probably came across so yeah that that was the uh, that was a kind of real turning point where we, it was pointless there was just no point in doing that other than it was very nice to have 25 30 people around in a nice office and and to be paying everybody's mortgages but but really, that wasn't the motivation for doing it. So we had to make a change. So you decided who were sort of the clients you wanted to get rid of, and then you see if you could make up for that income for like a year or yeah. a couple of years? Or? Yeah, I think it was, I think in the end, I think it was barely six months to last. <laughs> um, I think a year would have been far more sensible. Um, but because we were determined to cut fairly dramatically, uh, you know, we really, we really want to make sure that when we did this, that we were but we really were lean and that we really were just doing profitable work. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe six, nine months. I think maybe the business, the business plan probably didn't say six months. I don't think anybody would have backed that. But in reality, the amount we took uh, was about £150,000. So that probably would have been a lot more in dollars than it is today. It's probably about $160,000 today, <laughs> <laughs> uh, such as the value of our currency these days. But um, it was it, it, that was the amount that we took and that gave us uh, enough time to make those cuts and to not worry about paying the wage bill anymore because what we didn't want to do was make those cuts and just get rid of loads of staff right. you know, it, it was really hard to find all of those people and we wanted to keep the team together and to keep the talent that we had and see if we could make a go of, of just finding better clients i imagine that people's time was freed up uh, to a certain extent when you let those clients go where did they then contribute more to the marketing you know chris i, I can't remember i really <laughs> honestly don't know what, what happened there. i'm not sure it ever did free up that much I, I think we rolled pretty quickly into so i mean one of the things that happens is and this is this is again quite a common story i've heard this story um around people who've got not talking about clients but talking about staff so i remember hearing a guy do a talk about um he had some car dealerships and he said, typically, you've got, you know, so let's say you've got a minimum, every guy who, or girl who works for you has to sell 10 cars a month. And you've got one guy who sells 20, another guy who sells 15, and then you've got a couple that are just, just about getting by, maybe doing eight or nine. And then you've got one who's really struggling, you know, doing four or five every month. And, and it, what's natural is that you concentrate on the strugglers, you concentrate on the ones that are, aren't doing so good, um, because you're trying to drag them up to the minimum level required. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you actually focus on the ones who are doing really well, you might find that by giving them a little bit more attention, they can do even better. Mm -hmm. And we found that with our clients. So once we concentrate, once we actually went to the 28% the that, that we were doing good work for, but actually gave them a little bit more love and a bit more attention, and we started to look at their business and say, actually, we've spotted this opportunity here. Would you like us to talk about it? Because we suddenly had the time to be creative like that, and we could we could – we could be a bit more proactive as opposed to just reactive all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what happens? They, they All of a sudden, they're sitting up saying, yeah, that's great. We, <laughs> we never knew you were interested in that sort of thing. And please do come and talk to us. And we started to produce better work for those clients. And that that did genuinely um, snowball a bit. We had we, we, we got a lot more work out of the existing client base that we retained than we were getting beforehand. So it was a really strong lesson and, and a justification alone for doing what you know, for making the decision that we did. That's great. Uh, how long did it take you to pay the loan off? Uh, it was a fixed deal. We did, uh, it was expensive money as well, by the way. So it wasn't <laughs> cheap. So the, uh, the banks weren't interested. So banks are like really, really low risk lenders, uh, certainly over here. And they just, they just weren't interested in any way, shape or form. They already had the houses that we owned. They already had the, uh, the equity in those as, as um, as kind of guarantees for, for the overdraft that we had. And they just weren't interested in any way, shape or form. So we went to a kind of a VC fund, not, not a kind of traditional VC. It's a, um, more of a, uh, a fund over here that's um, linked to uh, kind of social results as well. So um, if you say that you, you're going to employ more people or you, you know, you're going to open an office in a new area or whatever, you can apply for different funds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they still got commercial targets to hit and we still had to pay them back in, in the same manner that you would pay a normal VC. 
uh, it was just the money comes from uh, the European bank rather than from uh, kind of private investors. And uh, they, I think they bought into us rather than necessarily the business plan. I'm not sure that they were convinced we could make a huge amount of money out of this agency. And um, it was quite nice to be able to not only pay them back that loan, but they took a, a small override, a couple of percent on the business uh, as well, that if we ever sold, they got uh, 2% of the sales. So it was quite nice to be able to make that phone call because it was genuinely one one individual that spotted something and, and decided to back us. And being brutally honest, without that money, uh, I'm not entirely sure we would have we would have, I'm not even sure we would be here today, but we certainly wouldn't have grown as quickly as we did after that. It, it did it did free us up uh, to be able to be much more creative and much more proactive. That's great. Did your team at the time believe, like, did they follow you into this, making this decision? Did they think you were crazy? <laughs> they would have definitely thought we didn't tell them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think everybody would have thought it was mental. Uh, you know, and, and most of the time when you say to people that, that kind of firing clients if you like they just they think that that's a an insane thing to do but for me i guess it was different for for mike and i because it was that or nothing we really had enough by then of of doing what we were doing up to that point it just seemed to be a bit pointless we'd risked everything we gambled you know a huge amount of not only money but our time you know kind of good years of your life and um we got to a point that it really wasn't that satisfying and, uh, you know, people always say it's the journey that's the most exciting bit. I don't buy that for a minute, to be honest with you. They were really, really hard years when you're not sure where, you, you know, where the next client or the next, uh, the next, you know, paycheck's coming from. I think they're really, really difficult times. And it became much, much easier uh, when we had a little bit of capital behind us. So it was a, it was a, a bit of a free, it felt, it felt quite freeing. It felt that we could be creative, like I say, rather than, just permanently reacting to the whatever crisis was ongoing at that time. How did the clients that you let let go react? Uh, most of them very badly. <laughs> so but one thing I realized around about that time is that nobody values anything free or anything that's too cheap. You know, they just assume that that's, that's, I don't think the people that we were working for, that we were working for at a way lower price than we should have been, um, really didn't appreciate that. They just, you know, you, you set a price point then and that's just what they do. And they assume that that's the right price point. So when we told them that either, you know, we were going to charge a lot more money or, or we had to go, yeah, they weren't happy at all. And when we did that review, we even, we found sites that we were still hosting for people that we hadn't invoiced for two years. I mean, you know, we had a couple of those where we'd just forgotten about them and they were still sitting on a, a Linode server somewhere and we were actually paying money out, although not much. But, you know, we were in theory still hosting somebody's website for nothing. And when we rang them up and said that they had to move it, they were invariably rather um, rather annoyed about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. But it, it, it just kind of proved that they were the wrong clients to have, really. Yeah. And, uh, and it was the right thing to do. So, And, and again, this advice came to me from somebody else. And there's a guy up here called Paul Callahan who's been a um, was a mentor of mine. And he, he'd gone through the agency journey and been very successful. And, and he told me about three years before I did it that, that they did this at some point. They did this kind of this client call. And and uh, and I remember sitting thinking, wow, I wish I'd been around to pick up the old scraps almost. You know, <laughs> that was how I felt about it. I totally missed the point um, <laughs> that, that actually those scraps weren't worth that thing. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a good bit of advice, but one I completely ignored for at least three years. And I think that's, again, is unfortunately, uh, no matter how much advice you get, sometimes you need to go through these things yourself. You know, it's just the way we are as humans. Are yeah. So I like to ask my uh, guests for three pieces of advice, you know, advice that you would offer other agency owners who are, you know, maybe a little earlier in the uh, agency journey than you are. Um, what, uh, what takeaways would you um, offer? Um, so I've hinted at these probably already, I suppose, but, uh, certainly on the last point, you know, be properly funded, uh, growth is expensive, no matter what business you're in. And just because you're selling time for money and that's something that you think you have as in your own, when you start or yours and a partner or whatever, that doesn't mean that growth comes cheap. And I think if I was doing this again, I would have, I would have definitely tried to put a business plan together that that actually allowed us to grow in the right way rather than just in the only way we could to survive. Mm -hmm. So being being financed properly, I would say, uh, is, is the first one. Um, 
don't do things you're not good at yourself. So again, when you start an agency, you tend to do everything yourself. Um, you know, you, you kind of, your, your financial stuff, you, you'll probably clean the windows if you have to. You know, you do everything because you think that's the right thing to do. But in reality, you've probably got a skill which is much better suited to, to you being focused on what that is. And uh, I mean, a, a great example here is I used to do our cash flow and uh, there's two things wrong with it. One, I wasn't very good, <laughs> so it was always wrong. Uh, so, so we were working on poor management information. Numbers have never been my strong point. Um, but the other thing is it used to take me for ages. It took ages. I would spend absolutely days looking at these spreadsheets, not really know what was going on. And yet when we eventually took the plunge and hired a, a finance guy for just one day a week, it was relatively low cost, but it seemed like a risky thing to do for mm-hmm. us. And yet in reality, hiring him, and paying him meant that he could do what I was taking days to do in a, in a fraction of the time, which freed me up to do the stuff that I'm actually quite good at. And it also meant that the information we had was was accurate. And uh, so we've, we've come across that scenario across different areas of the business many times over the last 10 years. I'm a big believer in, in, in people doing the stuff that they're really good at and ignoring everything else where possible. Um, and then the final, the final one is, uh, is, is, is around hiring. And uh, again, somebody gave me this advice uh, a long time ago, and it was fire before you hire and, uh, and fire somebody at interview stage if possible, because it's much better to really grill people at interview and really make them go through a process, you know, not being aggressive, but just really take people through a process that gives you a, a genuine um, a view of what they will be like to work with. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what I did in the early days was I was kind of selling the business to people all the time. I always felt that if somebody wanted to come and work for me, I, I, I was quite flattered actually. Right. So I, I used to probably spend most of, most of the time in an interview telling them about the company mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and rather than actually putting them through the, the task process that we should have done. So we got much, much tougher in terms of hiring uh, to make sure that we made less mistakes because people, uh, somebody told me a story. I'm not sure if this is going to translate, but I'll, have, I'll give it a go. Somebody said to me yesterday, actually, on this very topic, <laughs> it's better to have a hole in the business than an arsehole in the business. <laughs> and and I, I'm not sure if that does work, but, but basically it's better to have um, it's better not to employ somebody than to employ the wrong guy because if you get the wrong person into a job, then the chances are they'll suck the life out of everybody else around them, and it's uh, it's really destructive. So, uh, yeah, fire before you hire. That makes a lot of sense. That's awesome. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. It's it's really cool to hear your story and, and sort of the, the ups and downs of uh, Orange Bus. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking, Chris. Thank you. You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton. When he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com. 